Confession of, uh, let's see, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 27 is what we're on tonight. So let's uh, confess this truth together. I'll ask the question, we can respond with the answer. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried, and continuing under the power of death for a time. And let's turn to Scripture now. Our Old Testament text is Psalm 22. We're looking at Christ's state of humiliation, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism uh, teaches us that the work of Christ comes about in two stages. That first, Christ comes and he humbles himself, completes our salvation. Right? He suffers, he dies, he's buried. And then, this next stage is that he is raised and exalted. And as we turn to Scripture, um, we see this in Scripture. And, and Psalm 22 is a wonderful Old Testament text that brings this out. Psalm 22, of course, written by David reflecting on his personal experience, but also written as a, a prophecy of what the Christ, the Messiah, is going to go through. And it moves through this first a state of humiliation, then a state of exaltation. We see that in David's life, and that's the pattern for the Messiah to come. Uh, so we'll look for that as we read through Psalm 22 here. All right, Psalm 22. This is God's very word. Let's give it our full attention now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of, my, uh, out of the womb. You made me trust you while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, 
my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. In our New Testament text, Philippians 2, 1-11. And again, we see the same pattern here of Christ's humiliation and then Christ's exaltation. And this will be our sermon text. We'll be particularly looking at verses 5-8, through 8, but we'll read 1-11 through 11 here for some context. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That sends the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask him to bless it now to us. Lord God, we pray that you would help us now to read your word and mark it and learn it and inwardly digest it, to take it into ourselves and to understand it, to feed on it, to be nourished and strengthened by it. And and Lord, we pray that in this we would be nourished and strengthened in our Lord Jesus Christ, our all-sufficient Savior. So please bless us now uh, as you speak your word to us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. 
Amen. Westminster Shorter Catechism is, uh, uh, is a work of systematic theology. And um, some people question if we, if we need this sort of thing at all, right? Maybe we're just taking this, this structure and we're imposing it on something, right? And so um, right, we, we see this structure here that the Westminster Divines point out of Christ. Two estates of humiliation and exaltation. We might say, well, where in Scripture does it say Christ has, is, our, is our Redeemer in two estates, humiliation and exaltation? Well, we don't see that in Scripture, right? We've been looking at Christ's offices as well, at his office of prophet, priest, and king. And we might say, well, point me to a verse in Scripture that says Christ is our Redeemer and Mediator who fulfills three offices, prophet, priest, and king, right? And, well, there's no verse that, that says that. So why do we have these things that tell us that Christ does have three offices and he goes through these two estates as our Mediator and Redeemer? Well, you can think of it a bit like a map, Right? Uh, a bad map does not reflect the reality it's meant to reflect. It might, in, in some regards, a bad map is, is no good. It's really pretty useless. But a, a good map doesn't replace the, you know, the, the, the landscape it's describing, but it orients you to it. Right? If it's an accurate map, it says, here's, here's, here's where this is, here's where this is. And, and when you're in that landscape and you don't have the, you know, the, the bird's eye view, you can't see it all, you look at the map and you, you, it orients you to where you are. And you can understand the bigger picture as you, as you meet each point in it. And, and that's really what systematic theology is doing. And that's what the confession and the, the catechisms are doing for us. They're giving us a map. They're saying they look at the whole thing at once, right? They take the, 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 the bird's eye view. They look at the whole of Scripture. What do we see about Christ? What's he like? What are his offices? How does he save us? And, and they, they take all, all the information from all of Scripture and they, they try to bring it together in one nice, clear, concise statement. And that's, that's what we have here as we turn to this section uh, of the Catechism on our Lord's estate. And we see this, right? We, we, we've seen it, hopefully, as we've gone along, looking at the Scripture undergirding the truth of the Catechism, as we looked at Christ's offices of prophet, priest, and king. We saw clearly the Scripture teaches He is each of these things. And uh, tonight, Lord willing, we will see also that Christ clearly goes through this estate of humiliation before He goes on to His estate of exaltation. Uh, but but as, as we dive into this, I want to... Um, I want us to think about the question, what, what kind of Savior do we need? That's, that's what we've been considering together uh, through this section of the Catechism. We've been talking about Christ, who He is, uh, and kind of the question behind it is, well, what kind of mediator of the covenant of grace do we need? We saw we need one who's the God-man, who is both the eternal Son of God, who also takes on human nature and uh, comes uh, to be our representative and mediator for us. We, we've seen also that he is the one who must be our prophet, revealing God to us, revealing God's will to us, revealing the way of salvation to us. Must be our priest, offering the, the perfect sacrifice for us to make atonement for our sins, interceding for us, praying for us. And we saw that he is our king. And as our king, he conquers our hearts, brings us to himself, to his kingdom, and then he defeats all his and our enemies. He governs the church. He rules the church, rules over us, uh, and brings us into his kingdom. This is the kind of Savior we need. But there's more than this. There's more than this that we need. And there's more we need to see from Scripture's 
about this. And, and an essential part of it is this uh, framework the Catechism sets up of these two, uh, two estates of Christ, his humiliation and his exaltation. Now, we, as we read Psalm 22, I pointed this out, and, and I think uh, it was probably clear to you as we read it, right? It begins with David's sufferings, describing what he's going through, and then it comes to the point where he is saved by God out of his sufferings, out of the very jaws of death, and then he goes and he leads the people in praising God in the temple, and he celebrates the kingdom of God, and he tells others to praise God, right? And it's prefiguring for us what Christ himself does. As, he, as Christ will, will, will suffer death itself and then be saved from it by God and then ascend into the heavenly temple and lead the people in worship, just like, uh, just like uh, the pattern there in Psalm 22. So we see this pattern in, in the Old Testament. We see it in other places as well. And then we see the New Testament writers pick up, pick up on this. Um, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11, seems to summarize just about everything the Old Testament says about Christ under this framework. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So this is how Peter sees the Old Testament talking about the work of Christ. Two estates, suffering, Glory, humiliation, and then exaltation. So this week we're going to look at Christ, Christ's humiliation. Now, if there's any two words that really don't seem like they should be, be, uh, belong together, I think, I think it is these two, Christ and humiliation, right? We get used to hearing about Christ as the humble, suffering servant, but it, we, we shouldn't lose sight of how striking it is that the Christ would be humiliated and the suffering servant, that we, we, this was the design of his incarnation, this, was the, this, was the, this is what he came to do, this is how he can sum up everything he came to experience from his, from his incarnation, uh, to, to, from his birth all the way to his death and, and his burial. Jesus came to earth in order to be humiliated and humbled, brought low and suffer for us. This is um, incredible condescension on Christ's part. Uh, uh, Paul is, is talking about this in Philippians 2, and, he, and, he, and, he's, and he's waxing eloquent about all that Christ has done to, to, to stoop down to save us, deliver us from our sins. He talks here about, um, uh, it begins in verse 6, by telling us that Jesus was in the form of God. So he says, he starts for us before Christ's humiliation, the eternal Son of God in heaven, the very form of God. He begins with Christ before his incarnation. And he tells us he's in the very form of God. Another translation could be, he's in very nature God. The idea here is that he is co-equal with God, that he is God, true, complete divinity. Paul doesn't think Christ exists uh, only as, only as uh, Jesus is born. He thinks Christ is the eternal Son of God from all eternity, co-equal with God. What was Christ's existence like? Think about that. The eternal Son of God, what's he, what is his eternal existence like before he takes on human nature, comes in the flesh? 
we could picture the scene from Isaiah 6 that, that Isaiah sees, right? Um, Isaiah has this vision of the heavenly temple. We read, we read this in Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. That's where the eternal Son of God is. But it's not just the Father, it's the triune God, including our Lord, uh, including our Lord the eternal Son he dwelt with the Father and the Spirit forever as God in perfect, blessed harmony and communion forever. All glory was His. All riches were His. Uh, he had uh, uh, all the hosts of heaven were, were praising and exalting in His glory and His excellency and His beauty. What is Christ, the eternal Son? What does He do? Paul then goes on, he says, well, He didn't grasp at that. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't grasp at that. Instead, instead he, he gave of himself. The Greek in the, in the text here is a little bit challenging. Uh, the ESV, helpfully, I think, translates it like this. He says, says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not e- count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, Paul is saying that the eternal Son of God, this, this Christ before He comes in the flesh, was absolutely God, in every way God, uh, but He didn't think that this was something for Him to grasp onto and use for His own advantage and use for His own ends. Instead of grasping, He gave. Verse 7 tells us that He did this all of His own choice. That, that, that the eternal Son does this by His own choice. Freely choosing to do this. He is not forced into this. He is not unwilling. No, he makes himself, the text says, of no reputation. He humbles himself willingly. We see this. Jesus reflects on this same thing in John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus humbled himself. Doesn't that make his humiliation just that much more remarkable? That he wasn't forced to this. He chose it freely and willingly, under no compulsion. What does he do in in this humiliation? that he chooses. We see it in the next verse there, in verse 7. This unpacks the first step Christ takes in his humiliation. It says, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Paul's saying Christ didn't set aside his divine nature. The eternal Son cannot stop being the eternal Son. He can't empty himself of his divinity. But he empties himself in the sense that he takes to himself a new role. Uh, he, he didn't stop being God, but he took to himself this new nature, this, this human nature, in order to come and be the Savior. He took to himself a real body, took to himself a real human soul, became an embryo in Mary's womb. 
eternal son there in, in her womb as, as, as this little tiny baby. He's born in poverty, born in relative obscurity. He's, a, he's, an, he's born to a nobody. He himself appears you know, through much of his life to be insignificant. A little backwater town called Nazareth, um, not living in the limelight, takes on the role of a servant from the very beginning. God places him under the law, requires him to keep the law. He has to bow beneath it. The lawgiver, the one who wrote the law, who gave the law, Sinai himself, is now coming under the law. He subjected himself also to the miseries of this life by becoming a man. He, he opens himself up to, to these things, right? He, as, as a child, I'm sure he fell and, and scraped his knee and got the flu. Right, he, got, he got sick, he, he got tired, he got hungry, he got thirsty. I'm sure in his work, he knew what it was like to have the job not go the way he wanted it to. To, to, to have, to have the, the, the chisel slip and cut his hand. Right, he was subject to these things. This is all part of, of him humbling himself for us. He knew what it was to be disappointed, lonely, betrayed. And he knew what it was to lose loved ones. When his grandparents died, does he raise them from the dead? He knows the ache of loss. He knows uh, the, the pain of suffering, the frustrations, the miseries of this life. Hebrews tells us he's made like us in every respect except sin. He takes on our flesh, takes on our nature, takes on our very experience apart from sin. And he comes to serve. He takes this on because this is the garb of a servant. He didn't come to be one of the great ones. He came to humble himself and serve. And we see this, his whole life is one of service. We see it in John 13, illustrated so powerfully. He takes off the, 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 the garments of a teacher and master and puts on the garments of a servant. He gets down on his knees and he washes the disciples' dirty feet. And he washes all their, all, all, all their feet. These proud, ambitious, self-interested, self-seeking disciples who are always jockeying for the first position, he humbles himself to serve them. And this is just a picture of, of, of all that he's done in his humiliation coming down to serve. It's glorious that the Eternal Son would do that. Um, that he'd do all this for us, isn't it? But there's more. This is only the first step. Paul goes on. Verse 8. He says here, he's told us, the eternal Son has come down, taken on our nature, taken on the form of a servant, taken on a human body, come to endure the miseries of this life. But now he's going down further. Down further, down further. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He's already humbled himself. Now he humbles himself even more. Right? He, he becomes the lowest of the low. Becomes uh, humbled to the very point of death itself. His whole life is, is, is a downward trajectory from the point of his birth all the way to his burial. Paul points out two things in this verse about, about, Christ, about Christ's humiliation. First, he points out Jesus' long-suffering obedience. This is how Paul summarizes Jesus' life. It was a life of self-denying obedience to his Father. 
Jesus is not a servant, right? Or not, not as the eternal Son of God. That's not his role or his job. But he takes it on. He was not subject before his incarnation. He's not subordinate to the Father before he becomes man. He is very God of very God with all authority. But he comes down to obey, to do what he's told. He humbles himself to this life of costly obedience. He seeks to obey his Father in everything. His whole life is one of seeking to please and, and honor God. We see, uh, we see this as he, as he consistently, perfectly, faithfully obeys his Father. We, we see this brought out in, in Luke twenty two forty one 41-44. The agony of obedience there in Gethsemane. Tells us this, uh, Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. For so many of us, there's a limit to our obedience, isn't there? Or there there's, a, there's, a, there's a point at which it just becomes too expensive to keep obeying, but not for our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, he came to serve to the uttermost. You know, he came to obey His Father to the nth degree, no matter the cost. Then Paul highlights that Jesus' obedience unto death was death on the cross. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's all the way to death on the cross that He humbles Himself. The cross, of course, you, you know, is, was reserved for the, the, the lowest common denominator of criminals, reserved for those of whom Rome wanted to make a spectacle and a show of their death. It was a shameful way to die. It was an excruciating, humiliating way to die. And according to the Jews, if you died like this, hung up on a cross, hung up on a tree, you were under the curse of God. He's saying this, this one is not fit to be part of the covenant. This one's not fit to receive God's blessing and favor. This one, is, this one is outside the saving blessing of God. In Israel's history, um, in the book of Joshua, we see Joshua hang pagan kings to, 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 to show that they're under the curse of God. As he comes, as he leads the people into the promised land and the conquest, he defeats these pagan kings and he hangs them to show they're under God's wrath and curse. Jesus is being treated like a pagan king. Showing that God's curse has fallen on him. Paul writes about this. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What's he doing there? He's, that's, that's where we should be. He's made a curse because that's what we deserve. Right? He's, he's bearing what we deserve for our sins. He's, he's, he's bearing all the weight and all the heat of the wrath of God. He's, he's enduring there on the cross in those few hours an eternity of suffering. Hell itself. The wrath of God. Every ounce of God's wrath for the sins of all the elect. That is... Mind-blowing humiliation that he would humble himself to that. And then he's placed in a tomb. His dead body 
placed in a tomb. This is how low Christ went for us. This is His humiliation. A life of suffering, life of obedience, self-denying at times, agonizing obedience, submitting Himself, surrendering Himself to God's will, suffering for our sakes, the wrath that we deserved all on Him so that none of it is for us. This is what the eternal Son of God, from all eternity existing in perfect blessedness and joy, willingly chose to do for you. What would motivate him to do this? What would motivate him to come down and and be humbled like this? He does it first of all to please his Father. He does it because he desires to, to, to please the Father. We read this, we see it implied here in Philippians 2, 9. In, in our context here, he, he, it's because of Christ humbling himself willingly and, and obeying God to the point of death that God exalts him. Um, God is delighted that, this, that his son would be so eager to, to, to serve, obey, and please him, and that he would do such a thing. Uh, we see in John ten seventeen another text, the father loves the son, especially because of this willing sacrifice the son makes of himself. He does it to please his Father. He also does it, loved ones, for your sake. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8-9 about how Christ humbles himself out of love for his people. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is why he humbles himself out of love for you and a desire to bring you to himself and to save you. One of my favorite Christmas carols puts it like this. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. Thrones for a manger didst surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. That's what he's done for you. And it's not because we're worth saving. It's not because of our, of our uh, wonderful, uh, 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 lovely, promising potential. No, it's because He loves us, despite ourselves, despite our sin. He sets His love on us. This is the kind of Savior we need, isn't it? Not the kind of Savior we'd ever think that we needed. One who would humble Himself like this. Go from the highest position to the very lowest for our sakes. This is exactly the kind of Savior that we need. One who will come, bear the wrath of God, bear it all so that none remains for us. Who else would do this for you, loved ones? It's what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. For you. So trust Him. Rest in Him. Rest assured of His love for you. And of, uh, and of, of His commitment to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his uh, state of humiliation and the glory of a Savior who would humble himself for us. We pray that we would trust him uh, with all our heart and rejoice in him and, and, and follow him faithfully all our days. As we ask for his dear sake. Amen.